Hello, beautiful people. On today's episode of the Danny Miranda Podcast, we've got Eric Jorgensen, and this is Eric's bio from Amazon. Eric Jorgensen is a startup growth guy, writer, and rarely an angel investor. He is on the founding team of Zerily and has been publishing online since 2014. His business blog, Evergreen, has educated and entertained over a million readers. In this conversation, we spoke about some of those things, but we also spoke about Eric's new book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. This was a really incredible book. At the time of this recording, I'd only read about 100 pages or so, and there was just value, value, value. The link to that will be in the show notes, dannymarinacom slash podcast, if you'd like to check out the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Today's episode is brought to you by Tuesday Treasure, and that is my weekly newsletter where I share the coolest things I find every week. If you want to check that out, you could go to dannymiranda.com slash Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening, and without further ado, this is my episode with Eric Jorgensen. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So start us off with how this book came to be, because I know the story, you know the story, but explain to everyone how you created this book and where it started this whole project yeah i mean this just kind of started messing around on twitter um really i I just like kind of had the kernel of an idea um that i really wanted a book to exist that was kind of like um principles by ray dalio for a bunch of other people ray dalio says in that book like he wishes other people had written that i was like man me too and naval is somebody that i've been following for 10 years and I read all of angel uh, venture hacks and I watched Angelist kind of get started. And I just like gotten a lot from his talks and his tweets and his podcasts over the years. I was like, man, a, a version of principles that Naval wrote would be really, really awesome. Um, and I realized that all these raw materials were, were out there. You know, he had already given all of his wisdom. It just wasn't in the format um, that I would want and that I would be able to kind of like gift to someone else. And that is kind of an easy on-ramp to someone's philosophy. And I just, kind of offered to do it, um, you know, like joking kind of like punny way. And Naval retweeted this idea and, you know, 4,000 people said, yeah, we want that too. I was like, okay, I guess we're, I guess we're doing this project. Here we go. I'm committed. And so you have this project now and you have the support of Naval. And what is it like now to actually start this thing? Where do you first go? What's your first move? And tell us about that beginning process. Yeah, it started with Naval gave me like a full export of his Twitter history, which is around 20,000 tweets. And I just started going through these things and just, you know, tagging them and appreciating like the favorite ones, just kind of tagging like, yes or no, love this one, or this is not quite so timeless, or it's hard to take this one out of its context. And going through that process of categorizing and recategorizing and grouping ideas and finding things that contrasted or built on each other. And that kind of became the outline, you know, that that Twitter kind of overview. And then looking through uh, and building more and more transcripts, pulling in blog posts, uh, finding interviews and podcasts and things that he's done over the years. 
and putting this all, um, putting that kind of like meat on the skeleton and then just rearranging and rearranging and rearranging and putting, you know, threading the ideas together. Um, and I love, you know, a lot of this comes from one-on-one interviews that Naval has done. And so it feels very, it reads like a dialogue, you know, it's very kind of, um, it's almost intimate that way. And it kind of, the conversation pulls you through and I worked really hard to get that thread right so that the ideas kind of led into each other. And the next question was an obvious one that the reader probably had and was curious to kind of keep going. Um, and I'm glad to hear you say that it's, you know, drawn you into the first hundred pages and hard to put down because that's a perfect kind of, um, that's exactly the vibe I was going for. Yeah, man. It's crazy because what happens with this book in particular is, I feel like I'm not getting any fluff whatsoever. Like I feel like each idea is is just there and is making me think. And then as soon as I'm done thinking about that idea, it's instantly like another one hits you. And it's like that is such a perfect way. And you, you have all these books with introductions and prologues and, and expand, expanded upon uh, examples. And this book isn't like that at all. So it's really fascinating to just – see that happen and that was your intention right to to have a a book that was just able to be dived into right away right yeah very very much i mean i was um kind of from the outset i was really determined to make this incredibly incredibly insight dense um and actually have like goals around this like uh i'm friends with the guys at readwise um i don't know if you use readwise it's this amazing Mm -hmm. tool that like it pulls in all your kindle highlights all your highlights from from pocket whatever kind of your reading tools are and gives them to you in like a space repetition way to kind of help you stay refreshed on everything um but they have all of this data on kindle highlights and so they know what the most densely highlighted books are and i was like oh man that's the perfect uh measure basically of insight density and so i wanted this to be one of the most densely highlighted books I wanted to have a very kind of long tail uh, relevance. So I worked really hard on making it kind of evergreen. Um, and, and the ultimate test, I think, of that kind of density is can you just open it up to any page and find something useful on every single page? And that's it is almost impossible to achieve that kind of with a normal book, the way a normal book comes about. You know, an author has an idea or something that they're trying to put forth or even their life story, but they expand that to fill a book, um, you know, that one idea or that one story. And this kind of was the opposite process. I started with everything that Naval has ever said, written, shared. It's, I mean, well over a million words of source material, almost a hundred individual sources and compress that all down curation after curation after curation and filtering and just choosing the very best version of each idea and threading them all together into kind of one coherent thing. And I mean, we were, you know, when you get to, to the bottom of just like when the cuts are painful, everything you have to take out is like, oh, man, that's so good. I love that idea. I, I, I just, it has to go. It has to go. And, and those get harder and harder. And it's a sign that kind of the bar is getting higher and higher, that this book is going to be something that's really dense, um, it, like with insights. And it doesn't make it it doesn't feel complicated, I, I hope, um, you know, to, to some readers it may be. But. Um, I want it to feel dense with insight. I want you to be able to open any page and read something interesting and something applicable. And, um, you know, when you, when you distill someone who is already such a gifted distiller and synthesizer, um, you get something like really, really kind of remarkably relevant and dense and, um, useful, hopefully to a broad array of people over, over a long period of time. Hmm. Well, it certainly seems that way from my first pass. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about was 
that a quote that you had on David Perel's podcast that I actually mentioned in my newsletter, Tuesday Treasure, this past week. Uh. And it was a quote about you didn't, you decided to do this project once, but you don't actually, whenever you do a project, you don't actually decide once. You actually decide every single day. And it stuck with me. So I'd love for you to expand upon this a little bit more. Yeah, that was, um, it's something I think everybody can learn in their own way, you know, um, whatever the thing is that you have been the best at or that you have worked the hardest at, uh, you could probably internalize this lesson from, um, but it's, you feel like you decide to write a book once people ask that question, like, Oh, when did you decide to write it? And I was like, well, I can definitely tell you when like it started. Um, but I also can tell you the thousand times that I decided to keep going. You know, mm. and that is that is true no matter what kind of this long term goal that you're working towards. If you're starting a company, if you're building an audience, if you're trying to, you know, become an athlete or win a championship, you have to decide over and over and over and over again that this is your goal and that you are going to keep working on it. And that discipline um, to kind of get up and keep doing the same thing and keep moving forward. Um, you know, if you believe that you only have to decide once, that you're, I think you're going to run into trouble because you're going to watch that kind of slip away from you. Um, and knowing that that's just part of the process is to recommit and recommit and recommit, um, and arranging your life around that, or at least expecting that to be, you know, part of the psychology, um, I found to be helpful and it's something that I'm sure I'm going to apply kind of over and over again for my next projects. Um, it's easy to start things, at least for me, I'm a, a very, like, I have a million ideas. I'm trying to like go in less directions rather than more. Um, and it's really the things that you keep deciding and redeciding to work on um, that stick with you over the long run. It's really just a, a game of compounding. You know, if you if you're able to make that decision over and over again that you are willing to do this, that this is something you want to do, whether it be working out or writing a book or building your personal brand, whatever it may be. It's like you have to decide every single day that that's the thing you want to do, and if you can, the gains in that compound. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, Munger's, you know, rule one of compounding is don't interrupt it unnecessarily. Like you, mm -hmm. you have to keep it going. Um, and that, you know, pick a direction and keep moving in it for a long period of time. You'll keep getting better at it and the gains will continue to accumulate and compound on each other. Um, one of my favorite insights from the book is that Naval kind of expands. We, we are all, at least maybe in this audience, familiar with financial compounding, you know, compound interest, compounding returns. And Naval talks about how there is the same aspect applies um, in relationships and in trust building and in um, your reputation. You know, those the longer your streak is or your um, relationship is with somebody, the more trusting it is. And that allows you to kind of do things that other people can't do. That's actually, I think, the basis of brand building is like a compounded uh, trust, you know, over decades is, is what build, builds powerful brands, that consistency of delivering on that promise and in the same way to the same people um, over time. And so seeing that in and how you figuring out how you can apply that, um, you know, compounding habits, compounding relationships, compounding returns and in all areas of life. Yeah, man, absolutely. So talking about the having to decide over and over again about doing this project Talk to me about some of the darkest days of this project when it didn't seem like you were going to complete it or, or when it just seemed like this is overwhelming. There's too much material. Tell, talk to me about those dark days. Yeah, there were some tough um, 
there were times when I wasn't sure that it was going to ever be good enough, I guess. Um, you know, I had a high bar for this project over, over a really long period of time. And I knew, I mean, from the minute it came up, I knew that I had to ship it. Um, that was kind of one of the, one of the accidental blessings of this project is that I was publicly committed and committed to Naval basically from the first minute I had the idea. And he was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, and I'm not going to be the guy who's like, who gets a chance to go write a, basically a book about Naval and just doesn't take that chance. Like that's, mm-hmm. um, that ain't me. Um, <laughs> so it's a very, I knew that I was going to have to ship something and I gave myself as much time as I needed to get it as good as I needed it to be. Um, but the hardest part was when I didn't have a super clear direction on it. I, was, I wasn't super sure of the medium. Like there was a time when I was actually not sure that this was going to be a book. I was like, maybe this needs to be like a live updated blog. Maybe it needs to be um, a, a site that is kind of like synthesizing. And it, it just kind of evolved until um, I was like feeling stuck and tangled up a little bit creatively. I wasn't sure how to keep making progress. And a friend of mine was like, yo, this is a book. Don't overthink it. Just know that it's a book. Keep going. Um, mm. and that, that unlocked a lot of progress. Um, there's another kind of big creative question around whether I should be able to like write my own explanations or editorialize around, you know, should I be writing around Naval's excerpts or thoughts? And there's a lot of books, you know, like that as kind of like trends Griffin's, uh, book on Charlie Munger is like that. It's, you know, excerpts from Munger, but he's threading them together and explaining it. And I just, there were sections that really kind of begged for that, but there were also things that, you know, it would have been hard to add very much to, I would have been expanding it rather than distilling it. And I would have felt like I was making it less dense or pandering to maybe like a more basic, um, kind of audience rather than keeping it really smooth and fast reading for people who already knew kind of some of the basic concepts that Naval builds upon, you know, like anti-fragility and compounding and things like that. We don't define those kind of basic concepts. We just use them and build on them. Um, but some of those kind of uncertainties, um, that make it really hard for you to keep making progress. And, and when they are, when you make a decision about which road to go down, all of a sudden, you know, you feel freed to move and move fast Mm. again. And, um, realizing that when I was felt stuck, um, that those dark moments, I was usually missing a constraint or that there was like a question to answer that I didn't realize needed to be answered. And that's just kind of having conversations with friends. Um, it's a lot of times easier for other people to see it than it is for you to see it. Um, so not being afraid to show other people that project and, and your struggle with it, um, can be really, really helpful. Um, you know, even non, definitely like non experts in, you know, people who don't know books necessarily even, or know Naval can see and help you through a creative struggle. Um, so I, I would say, don't be afraid to go kind of show that struggle and have some of those conversations and people, people will help you find the right path. Yeah, man, I've been amazed how many times, even over the past month, I've been on the phone with a friend and my friend will say, you know, I knew that, but you saying it unlocked something for me. And it's sometimes like even the obvious things that if they're just said, you're like, oh, okay, now I know what to do. And yeah, it's the importance of having good friends who are willing to listen, who are willing to give you feedback on your work. And that's really invaluable, right? Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, and I, I am very grateful to the, you know, dozens of people who kind of read early drafts of this and gave me a lot of feedback and, you know, let me have conversations, you know, with them about very, very rough versions of this kind of early on. Um, you know, the first, 
three quarters of this project for, you know, for probably a year and a half or two years, every time I, I put this down and picked it back up, it was worse than I remembered. You know, I'd be working on it and being like, this is great. This is super helpful. Everybody's going to love this. And I put it down for a week and come back to it and pick it up. And I'm like, Oh God, this is not as good as I was hoping it was not as good as I remembered it being. Um, and it was really kind of once I started picking it up and being like, Oh wow, this is better than I remembered it. Like <laughs> seeing this with fresh eyes feels good instead of painful. I was like, okay, now we're getting there. Like now we're getting there. Uh, it felt, felt really good. And I was even like, just had this building excitement to share it with more and more people. So it's really kind of refreshing to finally have it up. Yeah. It's so interesting what you talk about writing something or compiling something, then coming back to the page and realizing like, oh, it's not that good. I find that to be one of the most useful tips for editing my own work is to write it and then give myself at least an hour or three hours, most most days, an actual day to come back to it. And the more time, the better, right? Because yeah. just, and that's why it's like, you need to give your writing time. You need to give the work that you do time to breathe because when you first do it, you're either really excited about it or really down on it and that's not really what it is. What it is is when you come back to it and look at it with unbiased eyes. So that's very interesting to hear that that was the perspective that you used to judge how far along you were on the project. Yeah, it was hard to know. I didn't, it wasn't an intentional decision um, there, but it was just kind of like I kept checking on it and knowing that I wasn't yet ready. You know, I didn't know what done looked like until I started kind of feeling that. Um, but I didn't know that that was what I was waiting for either. And it's, it's frustrating sometimes that it just takes time. You know, uh, the, the hardworking, ambitious part of me is just like, I want to do it all fast. Like I want to ship it right away. Like I should be able to work through this. And there's sometimes that it just like, you have to let the dust settle and no amount of activity can make the dust settle faster. You just have to go do something else and, and come back to it. Mm, Absolutely. So what I loved about this project particularly was the pure intent. It feel like, it feels like as a consumer, in terms of you're giving this book away for free. You're, you know, you don't care that the material's out there. You're not trying to guard it or, or hide it. And it's really interesting to see because from my perspective, it's very innovative. And you don't see a lot of books just open source in this way, but it's very Naval like and it's very it just feels very pure intent. So talk to me a little bit about the ways that this book is innovating in general and it's it's such a pleasure to see from a consumer perspective. Yeah, it, it was um, – I can't take you know pure heart of gold credit for it because it was also a condition of, of Naval's that, that, that this be freely available to everyone. Um, I was absolutely really, really happy to do it. And especially now that it's published, I see um, actually how important it is. You know, I'm getting DMs from people all over the world who are having trouble like accessing it through – Amazon or it's not in their country or it doesn't ship there even they can't even get it through the Kindle store and for most books I think the answer for people is like well tough shit um like oh this is too expensive for you oh logistically you can't get it like sorry not my problem like that's the publisher um and for this book the answer is like well the whole thing is available for free on nevalmanac.com the world is flat get yourself some knowledge like go to work do the best you can and you know, it's a very, um, all of the source materials are out there, but like, this is definitely a a more accessible kind of on-ramp to some of these ideas. They're in kind of shareable form. They're, you know, all 
kind of in this stacked order um, that that actually came from Nivy. Um, one of his recommendations is to make the book more fractal. And so you can engage with it on multiple levels. If you just read the table of contents, it looks like it reads like a summary of the book. And then you can kind of read just the, the tweets. Um, they're kind of formatted like aphorisms in the book. So you can just flip through, read the tweets, get a general idea. And if you see something that really catches your idea, your, your um, eye and you want to kind of dive around it, you can read the copy around that tweet. And that kind of explores that idea more fully. And then the whole kind of last chapter is Naval's recommended reading. So if you really loved, you know, reading about some of his philosophy, you can go look at the philosophy section of his recommended reading and dive into, you know, Jed McKenna and Krishnamurti and read all of the, his influences and spend years kind of swimming in the ideas that he, you know, kind of advertises for you here and shows you are out there. And that's, you know, one of a few kind of um, innovative things I wanted to do with the book, you know, the, the, the fractalness, um, actually use QR codes, I think are going to make a huge comeback now that they're kind of in the, you know, firmware of everybody's camera phone. Like you just, it's so much better than typing in a link, um, which I had not seen a QR code in a book before, but it seems so obvious once it's there. Um, so especially like links out to the books and stuff like that. Um, Jack Butcher's illustrations are, incredible. Um, and that just came out of, you know, building in public and, you know, he just reached out and was like, Hey man, I've done a bunch of these already. Like you want to use them for the book? Like, absolutely. These are incredible. Um, so his, his work is, is awesome. and really adds a lot. I think, um, I'm not a very like visual guy, so I would never have been able to do that on my own. So, um, teaming up with Jack was, was awesome. Um, yeah, it, it feels really good to kind of assemble everyone's best talents and mm -hmm. kind of put them all together and see what that can do for people. Absolutely. And one thing that I wanted to talk to you about was how writing this book and, and reading this book so many times, I know you mentioned you read it 20 times and obviously to go over it is incredible. And at least, <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously. And, and that's like, that's the ideas are really seeping into you. And so what, what my question was: What is one change you made directly after reading the book in your own life? Mm, yeah, I think the um, my my answer is probably different each day um, because so many of these things have kind of been absorbed, and you know, I'm I'm now like on the other side of this book launch. It's so fulfilling to kind of mm -hmm. see it out there. Um, it's a huge like stress relief for the launch to have gone well, and for that to you know all have gone relatively smoothly. And so now the idea that's kind of sitting on top of my brain is, um, this, it, it's a, such a simple idea, but, um, it's so helpful to have it kind of present in your head all the time, which is that, you know, we're only here for a very short time. We are completely in control of our perception of events and our own state of mind. No one can control it, but us as much as it might feel like that. And kind of to cap it off, like any time, any moment, any instant that you are not as happy as you feel like you can be in that moment, you're not doing any money in your favors. It's not better for you in the long run. It's not better for the people around you. Um, all you have to do is kind of choose positive interpretation and learn how to kind of look on the bright side and appreciate little moments. And that will really, um, you know, the, the world around you is neutral. Um, it's not good or bad. It's not good or evil. It's just, is what it is. And if you choose to interpret it positively, you will have a positive mindset and you will have a better experience as a human in your, you know, your brief time here. 
Brother, it's incredible because that is almost the exact interpretation I got from Kamal Ravikant's book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. And and it's really interesting to see how those two relate and how how I came to that conclusion from reading one book and you came to another conclu- that con- the same conclusion from reading a different book by the same brother um and it's it's just fascinating man because if you control your own mind if you control what's going on in your head you can control your reactions you can control so much that you I feel like in today's day and age we we tend to outsource our happiness, outsource our our decision-making in a lot of senses. And if you realize that you're in control and you have power over those things, it gives you an incredible amount of freedom to just love life tremendously. So, Yeah, the, the idea that it is a choice and that it's your choice and that it's a skill, you know, it, it is, it is um, maybe tried to say it's just – a choice. Um, it's maybe more accurate to say that it's a skill because it's, it's hard work. Um, you know, it's so easy to get pulled into, you know, a negative mindset or to have a, you know, shift to this kind of external locus of control or be upset that a thing, you know, happened to you in your perception. Um, and so it is, is a skill probably is a more healthy framing of it. Um, a choice feels like it should be easy. Um, and that that one choice is all you have to do. But, you know, just like we talked about earlier, it's a thousand choices. It's a million choices. It's it's a skill. It's a habit of learning um, to almost building new reflexes around mm-hmm. interpretation, around you know what things, how to appreciate little things. Um, I, th- I think I saw it was it was somewhere Naval adjacent, but it wasn't Naval um, on Twitter. That it was um, if you can't be happy with a cup of coffee, you'll never be happy with a yacht. And it's a thing that um, I love the the cup of coffee just as a trigger because every time you know you sit down with a hot cup of coffee, you're just like, if I can find joy in this little moment and in this simple thing, and finding joy in whatever we're doing in the moment is all any of us can do. And it doesn't matter whether it's a cup of coffee or a yacht. Um, the skill of finding joy in whatever is in front of you is is something that we all can work on um, on our own and something that we can all improve. And and this book will make you do that, right? Like at least reframe your mind in the sense of like, oh, I can choose to view things like this instead of like that. And super helpful for just anyone going about their life. What I love about Naval's advice really is that it's it can be applicable to so many people. It's so vast and it's mm-hmm. so wide. So speak to that a little bit about how you – have you seen in your own life – uh, different people from different places and different backgrounds, all being able to apply this advice. Talk about the vast nature of his, of his advice. Yeah. I mean, he, this, the reason I was so excited to work on this book is, uh, um, because I think it's, it transcends tech so far, you know, um, mm-hmm. Naval has been a tech investor and has worked in the startup world, but this book is very much about two things. One is building wealth. And one is happiness. You know that the subtitle is a guide to wealth and happiness, which is two are the two of the most fundamental things that every human is pursuing. You know, in their own way, no matter how big or small, um, we are all trying to kind of gather resources and care for the people around us, and we are all trying to improve our own state of mind and you know have a better outlook and have a better time. You know, in the time that we're alive. 
Um, and those, these are such basic principles that he talks about both of these things at such a principle level that I think almost anyone can apply the lessons of this book and the learnings of this book, um, to their circumstance. Uh, you know, I, I very much hope and believe that this book can transcend the tech world or transcend the Twitter world and kind of get to any demographic. And I, I truly believe that anybody can take something life-changing away from this book. Naval just has, he is so broadly read and he's so, um, this is his whole life's learnings, you know, of a very kind of well-studied, um, introspective, successful guy. I mean, he started as a, you know, a poor immigrant in a single parent household and he came to Brooklyn at age nine from India. And he's now one of the most prolific angel investors and in the Valley, he's a founder. He's, you know, well-followed. I think he's almost a million followers on, on Twitter, primarily for his kind of philosophy distillations. And it just kind of, I think that there's something that anyone can pick up and use. He has such a gift for distilling things into such a concise kind of um, tight prescription and such an incredible um, gift for just pithy statements that summarize huge, complex, interconnected things that people struggle with on a, you know, on a fundamental, like basic human level um, that something will just earworm and stick in your head forever and change your life. And, I hope everybody kind of gets the chance to pick up one of those those nuggets and carry it away. Hmm. Absolutely. So one topic that I wanted to talk to you about that at least the one of the first sections is on is is on productizing yourself. And I wanted to talk to you about this about you personally and how you're doing that. How are you following the advice, if if you are at all, of productizing yourself on on the internet. Yeah, that's, um, that's funny. That's a topic that's been on my mind a little bit lately. Um, now that I'm kind of just on the other side of this, I'm thinking more about how to apply it. I was actually joking with Jack butcher the other day. Cause he, um, he has been basically doing this perfectly over the time that I have been writing this book. Um, and I didn't look at what he's done. I was like, Oh, that was a great use of time. Um, and like I studied this so much harder than you did, but you started applying it so much sooner and you were wow. getting a lot more out of it than I am probably. Um, so he's, uh, you know, what he's doing with visualized value is, is incredible. And I really, um, look up to him as like a practitioner of all of the things, uh, that are kind of in this book. And so I'm thinking more about, um, about what that is and the theme that I've kind of had, um, that wasn't necessarily obvious at any point, but looking back, I have a project called Evergreen um, before I did the Novalmanac and Evergreen was also a kind of a curation project. It was, it was very different, but it was looking at um, the internet as this kind of giant, massively disorganized, incredibly difficult to navigate maze that is also the most resource rich, like is the ultimate tool for self-education. Everything is out there. Everything is free. It is just an organization problem and there is no, the metaphor is just there's no library. Google is your command F key. Wikipedia is your encyclopedia. Reddit is your front page. Um, and I wanted to start kind of building the library, a place that is meticulously categorized. You know, it's it's Dewey Decimal System doubt, you know, whatever the new you know, version of the Dewey Decimal System is. Mm -hmm. And we've got 
a, a bar, like a curation bar, where everything in there is above a certain quality bar. Everything is excellent. It's more than you could ever need, but it's easy to find a great resource to solve the problem that meets you where you are. You know, whether you're beginner, intermediate, advanced, no matter what the problem that you're dealing with is across all of these things, it is clear to me that the internet needs a place like this. And now we are so early, really, in the the life of the internet. And um, you know, Google had, was absolutely critical to finding where we were, but it is also, you know, not the only way to search and curate information. And I mm-hmm. think that there is a place for, um, a place for curation. So Evergreen was, it, it was business focused. Um, but I would pick one topic and say, Hey, all right, this week it's network effects and send an email out to my, the email list and say, what's the best thing you've ever read, watched, listened to what's the best resource you've ever encountered on network effects, send it to me. And I would take a week and I would just consume absolutely everything that I could. I'd pull out the ideas, the key kind of pieces I'd contrast things that conflicted with each other. I'd summarize, synthesize into this kind of 10 minute post that was an overview of network effects and link back to all the original material. So again, it was a little bit fractal, you know, you could have this 10 minute reading experience you could, or you could dive in and spend hours kind of becoming, you know, a a one week expert on network effects Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to apply them and things like that. So that was, um, was quite a successful project um in 2015 16 it still gets a ton of traffic you know to this day um it's just if you search evergreen medium uh, evergreen business um it should show up and i think you know true to its name everything still applies there and i would love to kind of um see that carried forward you know that that theme that kind of we now have a we are now in a place where there is so much creation and there's so much uniqueness on the internet and it's such this vast maze of disorganized, incredible content that really um, the bottleneck to each individual's growth is being matched with that content is, is finding it's great curation that can get them there. And then we have some algorithms driving that, which is um, helping, you know, considerably, but also these algorithms, you know, YouTube, um, Twitter, Instagram, are removing agency from people and those algorithms really kind of make you more of who you are. They don't help Mm -hmm. you become who you want to become. I can't go into Netflix and say, I actually don't want to watch, you know, cartoons anymore. I want to watch mostly documentaries and I really want to watch it. They watch your behavior and feed you more of it. They don't let you aspire. Um, and they don't kind of pull you in a direction that you get to set. And that is something that takes willpower and takes intention and I think that we can create that and make that easier for people um, is something that I think is missing and would love to kind of try to put the pieces in with better curation. Yeah, you really are a master curator because you've spent now a few years doing that project. You've spent a few years doing the Naval project. So what are your tips? Do you have any tips for someone really just getting into the curation game in general? I started a newsletter and you know I've realized that by doing this newsletter, it's really just I'm curating the coolest things I find every week. And do you have any tips to improve this process? I, I think, um, I mean, we talked about this before we started recording a little bit, but just trusting your own taste. Um, I, I think there's a sense sometimes of what you should be doing and, and what, you know, an audience would want to see or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the projects when I have been most successful and actually kind of paradoxically done the best for other people have been when I just did what was authentic to me and what came easiest to me. Um, and I did it at my level, you know, there's, um, 
the right people will kind of find you and you have to trust that if you do your best work as yourself, you know, you will help somebody. There's plenty of people out there who are looking for the kind of thing that you are already naturally gifted at doing Mm -hmm. and just lean into that rather than trying too hard to do something that you, that isn't natural to you or that is above, um, you know, where you would naturally kind of be like, don't force yourself to try to, I, I, I had a misadventure into the investing world where I started like writing about investing. Um, even foundationally, I was just writing about investing mistakes and it, I just wasn't that I wasn't as interested in, it. I thought it was a compelling idea. Um, and it, it was fun for a time, but it was not as, it didn't come as easily to me as the curation did. It didn't come as easily to me as, as studying, um, business from an operating perspective. And so I just kind of, you know, made one of those decisions to not continue it and, mm-hmm. um, and to focus on other, other projects that I was working on. It's really easy, right, to get trapped in the idea of thinking everyone's going to like this or this can make a lot of money and we get <laughs> drawn and pulled in those directions. But it's often just listening to your inner voice and it's so easily said but so much harder to do to listen to that inner voice and really try to think what would I enjoy consuming? What do, what do I enjoy consuming? And putting more out there similar of that. Yeah, it almost feels like cheating. It feels like it shouldn't <laughs> yeah. be that easy. You know, it doesn't yeah. feel like work when you're doing it, right? Like this book didn't feel like work for most of the time. You know, this mm-hmm. was a project that I I wanted to do and I was eager to do and I was, you know, um I was studying something that I wanted to study and um and getting to apply it kind of at the same time, which is really interesting. Uh Naval's kind of explanation of this comes is specific knowledge. That's his term for it and there's a chapter in the book about it. And finding and trusting your own specific knowledge, the thing that only you can do and um, how to get better at that is that is kind of um, a key, key thing that summarizes what we're talking about here um, and encourages people to kind of keep going down that. It it makes it difficult to copy. It makes your life easier. It makes you happier. um, And it's, it's authentic And, and your specific knowledge will change and build over time, but there's nothing wrong with starting where you are. You know, there's, 14 year olds sharing their specific knowledge on the internet and building audiences and finding success doing that. You know, Charlie Munger is sharing his specific knowledge. Warren Buffett is applying his, you know, we're all, um, kind of naturally gifted, you know, genetically into experience at different things and finding and leaning out into those specific knowledge and those specific strengths is, is key. Um, and I'm finding you know, the more conversations I have like this, that it's really, people don't often get good, helpful feedback about themselves. And a lot of people don't know their specific knowledge. And that's, I under socially, I understand why, you know, people don't go around giving each other feedback on each other all the time. (laughs) Um, but it is really, it it sometimes, um, hampers progress in that. And, And it's so easy to kind of study other people and study their success and feel like you should be like them. And that that's a path to success instead of realizing you have to inventory your own strengths and interests and chart your own path and, and that everyone who is successful before you, that is what they did, um, rather than follow the playbook of someone in front of them. And I've been wondering kind of how I can, um, if there's, you know, products or services or coaching or questions or like what I can do to help more people discover their own specific knowledge. If, if the book alone kind of isn't enough to get them there. Mm, that's great. And Speaking on that, one quote that I actually sent to a friend today while I was going through the book was the following from Naval. 
and I wanted to bring it up is the year I generated the most wealth for myself was actually the year I worked the least hard and cared the least about the future. I was mostly doing things for the sheer fun of it. I was basically telling people, I'm retired, I'm not working. Then I had the time for whatever was my highest value project in front of me. By doing things for their own sake, I did them at their best. It's incredible. It's the truth, right? I, I think so. I mean, I think you can. I think you can see that in probably a lot of different stories. Um, you know, as you were reading that, I thought of uh, Mr. Money Mustache. I don't know if you you read that blog. Um, he's like a financial independence, early retirement uh, guy who kind of applied uh, the you know the early learnings of Jacob Fisker, but in a really like fun way, he had a, you know, software engineering job and his goal was to retire by the time he was 30. And so he had a really high personal savings rate of like 60 or 70. He would live on 30,000 a year living in Colorado and living a very good life. He was just very, very conscious of his spending and wanted to control his time, retire early and stop working. And he started blogging about this process in, in his own kind of like fun way. He wrote in a way, he created this character and wrote in a way that was fun for him to do. You know, it, it looked so much more like play than like work. And he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on this side project that was just fun and like certainly retired early on his salary. But it was just, he was so much more successful doing the thing that was authentic to him than the thing that was work. Um, and I have no idea why that's the example that comes to mind. I just think it is, uh, it, the word fun, like brought that one up, um, because he was just so clearly having such a great time with it. And I, I would love to kind of, um, you know, there are people like, I think Joe Rogan, you know, for a, a popular example is in a place where the more fun he is having, the more successful he is at what he's doing. Like Burt Kreischer as a comedian is in the same place. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think there's a lot of people and I think that there you can find, those people are genuinely happy um, because they have found they found like the middle of their Venn diagram, um, which is something that uh, I think a lot of people maybe don't believe that there is for them. Um, but I think that's a, a good it's a good thing to test. You know, um, it's definitely a good thing to push for because you may be surprised. And it's like understanding that you might go down the wrong path along the way. Right. Like currently this podcast is so much fun for me. Am I yeah. going to be doing this forever? Maybe. I love doing this incredible amount, but am I going to? You don't know. But you have to have the risk and you have to have, be willing to take the risk that what you're doing right now isn't the thing you're going to do forever. And that's difficult for a lot of people, right? Yeah. Uh, there's many there's many people that if you dig around, you know, it, they found their way through dead ends. You know, they, mm -hmm. they just kind of like poked around a lot of things and you don't see those early experiments because they get kind of buried by time or they're just not what the person is known for. Mm -hmm. um, but the more people you read and the more kind of early things you look at, almost everyone has a very wandering path kind of early in their life or, or just like very surprising stepping stones. You know, Steve Jobs said like, you don't know how to connect the dots. It only makes sense in the rearview mirror. You can't life plan mm -hmm. everything out. I don't know where this podcast is going to take you, but I'm sure you're going to meet some incredible people. You're going to encounter some incredible ideas and it'll serve you in some way that you couldn't possibly have predicted. Dude, that's, that was the exact quote that came to mind when you were speaking. So it, <laughs> it's great. It, I mean, it's so true. And, and we, we just constantly, I think the key to it is taking action, right? And actually doing things instead of thinking about them. 
And because when you take action and, and you're actually in the arena, it gives you feedback so that you can say to yourself, okay, I'm kind of off here. I'm a terrible podcaster, actually, and I should go do something else, you know? So you have to be in the arena to get the feedback. Yeah, that that is something that I really um, – another kind of huge lesson that I took away from this is that you can't learn ahead of the context. It, at least for me, like I am so much better at if you prioritize the action, like if you just take the action, you get in the arena, then the learning will come. Mm-hmm. Um, you will be forced to overcome these obstacles and you will go figure out, you know, I, I used to read, you know, when I was probably five or six years ago, I would randomly pick up a blog post about like how to publish a book. And in retrospect, like that time was completely wasted. Like I internalized none of that. Um, I did not need to learn how to publish a book in order to write one. I just needed to sit down and write one. And once I was committed to that, and once I had done enough of that process, once I was sitting there with a, what I think is a book manuscript in front of me, it turns out a publisher reaches out to me and says like, Hey, I want to help you publish your book. Mm-hmm. It's great. You know, when, when you put forth the effort into the universe, like help appears to help you get over those obstacles. Um, and you don't always have to learn the whole journey, you know, before you take the first step, you don't have to plot everything out. You just have to kind of start moving. And that movement, that momentum will keep you invested in getting over the next, next obstacle and the next obstacle. And the more kind of velocity and momentum you create out there, the more people are going to show up and help boost you over kind of whatever, whatever comes in your path. Yeah, man. And it, it reminds me of a tweet that I had in the past week or two, which was, there is wisdom in the grind. And that is the, that is exactly what you, <clears throat> what you demonstrated by, by first reading the book. You read the book, How to Publish a Book. And what you actually found was the wisdom by actually creating the book. And <clears throat> it's funny because we sometimes think that the wisdom comes from learning. That's what we're taught in school. But what you actually find is wisdom comes from doing the thing. And it's just certainly proved true in my life and maybe in yours as well. Yeah. The the thing I keep telling myself is it's easy to kind of learn something and think, you know, how to do it. You know, this is to leave rails against the, you know, intellectual yet idiot who like thinks they understand a thing because they have learned about it, but they haven't actually done it. And if you haven't taken the test of reality, you don't actually know if you're going to pass it. And so you live with this whole like kind of fragile construct of like thinking that you know something, but never having felt yourself do it. And that's just, it's an awful way to live. Like I have, everybody has aspects of it. You know, I feel like I could do that thing. There's that like success porn kind of feeling where it's like, I really want to read about someone else doing it. So I feel like I could do it or I feel like I did it. And that is just so much less fulfilling than like, going out and getting even your own small win and building confidence that you can do this thing or, and and take on the next bigger obstacle and the next bigger obstacle, like just, you know, start putting your own hands in the mud and Mm -hmm. that, that will become so much more rewarding so quickly. Um, that that's a surprising lesson. It's, It's one, another one that's difficult to remember. It's difficult to practice, but keep taking the test of reality. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you know something that you have not passed the test on, like the reality test, not the, not the Scantron test, you Mm -hmm. know? Absolutely. So changing gears a little bit, I went through some of your old, most popular tweets and so much wisdom in there for those who are curious. It's, uh, one of them that stuck out to me was the old status symbols versus the new status symbols. So you had this tweet in 2017. Talk to me a little bit about it today and 
and how it still applies. And I just, I saw that and I was like, this is so true. I have to bring this up on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was uh, surprised with how far that one went. Um, but I like it. The, the, the farther it goes, kind of the more true it feels to me, I guess. I was like, oh, a lot of people agree with me on this. I was, this was a more <laughs> widely spread. Um, it's interesting how these things change over time. Um, and if you have it in front of you, you probably have a more complete list than I can do off the top of my head. But um, it really feels like the new status symbols are, you know, something more like physical fitness. You know, we're seeing like these killer brands like Equinox and Lululemon and, you know, health is a status symbol now. Fitness is a status symbol. If you have time to be exercising and eating healthy and, you know, shopping at Whole Foods, of course, health and fitness does not require any of those brands. Like you can just go run and do push-ups and prove that you have, you know, discipline and strength and to do something hard. Like that is where that status symbol comes from. But we're seeing a lot of things like pop up around that and kind of ride that trend. Um, another is, is freedom and flexibility, you know, um, prestige used to come from a title or a job or, you know, working at a big company. And now we're seeing more and more people, you know, be nomads or work independently or, um, kind of be independent creators or freelancers. And we're seeing the job tenure come down. Um, so people are identifying less with their career at a specific company and more with their career as a body of work or a series of accomplishments for on behalf of different companies. And it, it's hard for me, you know, I'm, I'm one person, I have a small perspective. I'm only touching one part of the elephant, but at least in my corner of, you know, Twitter and the tech world, like these seem to be really kind of, um, pretty widespread and pretty holistic trends, but people are, it still is early enough that people aren't sure how, how widespread it is and how, um, or how permanent the change is. Yeah, man. And it's interesting that you brought up tenure at a company and length at a company because I was actually on your LinkedIn before prior to this, this call. And I was, I saw that, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but you've been at the same company for nine years. Talk to me a little bit about that. If that's true, because you can't trust everything you see on the internet. And what's it like, if it is true, to work at a company for, for nine years? Because people our age don't normally see that. Yeah, that, that is true. Um, it is a long tenure, especially in the startup world. Um, and, and really, like, the company has changed a lot in those nine years. You know, we've gone through many different business models. We've gone through many different kind of um, team regimes. We've even moved our, our headquarters from San Francisco to Kansas City. Um, so we kind of have changed a lot. Um, you know, the name of the company, the corporation has stayed the same, even our, our kind of market has changed. So, and my role certainly has changed a lot in those, those nine years. Um, but it is, I find it very rewarding to be at an early stage company that is going kind of from zero to one and finding product market fit in especially a huge market with a big problem. And, I really kind of love being a part of that, like small team figuring out how to do something new and and get the initial formula right that, if correct, can be expanded, you know, a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times and, and kind of see that model get replicated over and over again. That is more exciting to me than doing the replicating um, There's deep, you know expertise in that. And I absolutely admire the people who can do it. It is, it is, um, I've seen it up close and it is truly incredible. Um, but I'm, I'm find more joy in the, like 
getting those starting conditions of the universe right and, and like creating hopefully that big bang. Um, mm. And so I'm just, you know, we're, we have a great team um, and we love working together and we're just getting, trying to get that initial condition right and um, see it take off from there. That's awesome, man. Um, going back to the tweets, uh, there were two more that I wanted to bring up, which is like blew my mind. This one, how, how is this possibly true on a daily basis? 15% of searches, 500 million, have never been seen before by Google's search algorithm, search engine, and that has continued for 15 plus years. That's incredible, right? This is like your most popular tweet ever. <laughs> it is. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that like, I feel like it comes up every few years and everyone's like, whoa, and then forgets. <laughs> and then it comes up again and people are like, wait a minute, still? How is that possible? Yeah. Um, that and even the everyday part is is kind of um, maybe the most incredible part of it to me. Um, and, and there's all of these. I mean, there's a long thread of responses of different kind of theories and different contributors. Um, and it basically seems like everybody is in complete disbelief except two demographics. One is computer programmers who are constantly like innovating new things. Googling very strange error codes that come up and I mean that the pace of innovation in software is is incredibly rapid They're creating new things new programs constantly um, So that was one and the other is is linguists um, Because they're very familiar with how quickly language evolves and how quickly new ideas get introduced and you know when, when you see I think linguists maybe is, is where this starts but even you know, as a layman, we can look at it and see how quickly new celebrities come and go, how quickly, you know, new ideas, new memes, new platforms. Um, so it, TikTok maybe didn't exist two years ago. And now how many permutations of new TikTok, you know, searches are out there on a daily basis and new celebrities on TikTok. And um, so you, this, I, I think it's a very beautiful quantification of the rate of change of, of kind of like how fast humans are creating new information and solving new problems and expanding our, you know, kind of sphere of the world. Like 15% is a lot. Um, yeah. and I, I, that makes me kind of, um, I, I would have ma massively underestimated that. I think almost everyone would, but it makes me deeply optimistic about the rate of change, the pace of growth, and actually the amount of opportunity that exists at that frontier. Like if you imagine, you know, humanity as a, a sphere um, like this is all of human knowledge is all of the human experience and it's expanding at a rate of 15%, you know, per day, that is an enormous frontier and it is a consistently expanding frontier. And so as we talk about, you know, your specific knowledge and how to find kind of your way to put a dent in that universe, you, you think about how big that frontier is and, and like, don't tell me you can't find a way to contribute to that kind of growth and solve a new problem you know, in a way that is unique to you. Um, you know, humans are astonishingly unique. The combination of, of genetics and our human experience, like no two people are alike to an incredible degree. And we are so good at, um, you know, the number of individual changes and the human experience. We're all like shockingly unique. Um, there's a, in a way that is difficult to even kind of comprehend. Like you have to work really, really hard at it and then you get it for a second and then you lose it because it's very difficult to go through your life thinking about everyone around you as, as unique and nuanced and deep and um, kind of unfathomable as you are. Um, that's just like a paralyzing 
thought. Um, but if you think about how you can apply that, you know, your uniqueness to the size of that frontier, like there is so much to do and so many problems to solve and so many ways that we can improve lives for all the people around us um, and apply our talents to that. I, I find that incredibly, um, that it is this incredible source of optimism for me. Dude, I love how you tied that in and also gave us an optimistic look at it because I read the tweet and I, I was like, what am I supposed to make out of this? Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? So thank you for tying that in. Was, that was great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It, it took me a while. Um, and I think it's an interesting, uh, the replies to that thread are fascinating. Hilarious. Um, yeah, fascinating and hilarious. And yeah, it's a, it's a good time. Um, recommended. So it makes you it makes you think about as you're googling things too. You're like, am I the first person to ever? Yeah, there's like a one in eight chance that I'm the first person to ever Google this. <laughs> That's crazy to think about. So the last tweet that I wanted to bring up to you was one that is so simple and so was so profound to me too, and that is that Christmas Day is my favorite workout of the year because I know none of my competitors are working out. Talk to me a little bit about what this quote meant to you. Yeah, that um, that is not a direct quote from me. That came from um, an Olympian at our uh, rowing club. So I was a, a road crew in high school um, in Detroit at Detroit Boat Club, and it's an incredibly kind of storied program. It was one of the first rowing clubs um, in the country, I believe. Or it was one of the first boat clubs um, that we rowed out of, and you know, there's amazing kind of champions who have come and gone through that program. Um, and we had a coach who was like supernaturally unreasonable. Like he believed in nothing except complete dedication to the program. Like if you're like, Hey coach, I gotta go take the ACTs. Like I got to miss practice on Saturday. He's like, you don't need the ACT, like show up to practice. You'll get good enough at crew. You'll get into Harvard. It'll be fine. Um, it just like no excuse was acceptable um, for any reason whatsoever. And I, I, that was like formative and I, I loved it and fed off it. And we were incredible kind of in because of that discipline. Um, you know, we, we rode at a very high level, but that was um, one of the guys who was kind of an ever present like influence on, on all of us as, as high schoolers. And I thought that was such a good um kind of attitude like that is a champion's attitude like not only do i want to outwork everyone on every day but i want to know when they're not working and when i can get ahead you know that is um there are some games that you cannot win without just purely outworking other people and you know crew crew is one of them like there's no way to get that strong or have that much stamina without just putting in the work um you know you're you're natural athletic ability can only get you so far. Um, size can only get you so far. It is just who can work, get outworked, um, or who will outwork you. And it's, um, it is grueling in that way, but it is also kind of very pure, um, rowing and swimming were my two sports and they were kind of both like that. Um, and, and I just like, you know, none of all would disagree with that. There is definitely ways to kind of work smarter and more leveraged in, in the world today. Um, but hard work as a foundation and, and discipline as a foundation is um, is a good thing. I think it's good for us to have that um, as, a, as a kind of backstop to know that we can work that hard and to know what it feels like to push our limits and, and keep going through some of those things. It's really interesting, right? Because on one hand, you have Naval saying you have to you know find leverage, find leverage as a way to 
create wealth. And on the other hand, you know, at some point, hard work, how does hard work fit into that and doing what other people won't do in order to gain leverage? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. The, yeah. The hard work um, is a very kind of nuanced piece of the book. And, and there are things in there that, um, you know, a, a nitpicker would say these are contrasting pieces. Um, but if you if you work at interpreting them, you kind of start to see the nuance and you see where they complement each other. And so, you know, Naval says like work as hard as you can, like you cannot skimp on hard work. Um, but he also says hard work isn't the only thing. Like mm-hmm. you can work really hard on the wrong thing and get nowhere. And especially in an age of leverage and with heavily multiplied judgment, you can accomplish a lot, um, like hard work as a fixed input, one person can massively outperform the other, especially in specific games. Um, so there are some games that just can't be won without hard work, but the practicality is you're going to have to work hard. Um, and, but it is, it is kind of step eight, not step one. Um, it is an important piece. It is not certainly not sufficient on its own. And so you have to, you know, do the hard work to figure out what the right hard work is and then do the hard work itself. Um, but it is not, it is not enough to just bang your head against a wall and say like, I'm doing hard work. Therefore I deserve, you know, this outcome. You have to understand like where the leverage points are and be sure that your hard work is applied the right way to the right problem. Love that. I love that. So with that being said, I think we're going to wrap this baby up and please tell everyone, my friend, where they could find you on the internet. Yeah, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, my first and last name is my handle at Eric Jorgensen. Um, I have everything for the book on the book's dedicated website, Um But I got open DMs. My email is on the website. If you want to find me, um, I'm, I'm easy to get to. I feel like you're, you've done that before and you're going to do that many times in the future. So <laughs> thank you very much, Eric, for joining us today. And it was a great conversation. I'm so happy to, to have you back whenever you create another curation and, or whenever you just want to chat, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks, Danny. This was fun. That was my conversation with Eric Jorgensen. If you enjoyed this conversation, let me know on Twitter. It's at Hey Danny Miranda. And you can also help support the show by leaving a review on iTunes. That really helps more people find it. Thank you so much for listening until the final seconds. I truly appreciate you. And I'll see you guys in the next one.